Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming at KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Nick Richard. Today we have members of the organization Families for Safe Streets who talk about their lifetime of activism after their loved ones were killed in traffic violence. Frank, Beverly, and Lizzie are with Bike Talk co-hosts Lindsay Sturman and Galen Mook. Welcome to Bike Talk, everyone. We are doing a bi-coastal conversation over Zoom right now. My name is Galen. I am actually out in the East Coast, currently Zooming in from Providence, Rhode Island. We have Lindsay from Los Angeles, Lizzie from Queens, and Grandma Bev out in Southern California as well. This is a great contingent. We're going to talk about safe streets and the importance of why we need to really get the message across to the hearts and minds of everybody about how we need to slow down and be safer and really think about the human first perspective of all of us sharing the roads. And real quick, I'm going to just go through the quick bios and then I'll kick it off to you, Lindsay, and the guests to take it away with us. But we have Lizzie Rahman here. She's a writer with books that are published in Bengali. Her latest book was published earlier this year. It's about her son's tragic death in a car crash and her activism to get bike lanes in Queens on Queens Boulevard. And according to Lizzie, it took 14 years of advocacy to get the lanes down. And starting from the mother's instinct, and later on, she's been joined by many people and many organizations that have backed her. Um, So welcome, Lizzie, to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Grandma Beverly. She's the founder of Southern California's Family for Safe Streets, and she's a 10-year board member of the California Walks organization. Beverly began this work because her five-year-old grandson, Zachary, was tragically hit and killed in a crosswalk in Berkeley, California in 2009, and she's been advocating ever since to get the word out about safer streets and remind us that crashes are preventable and we all are in this together. So welcome back to the program, Beverly. Thank you. And then, Lindsay, I'll pass it to you to introduce yourself, but I know you from your work out in Los Angeles, trying to work on car-free communities and slowing down traffic in LA, which is a beast of a challenge. And for all your work about land use, housing, and how it overlaps with sensible and equitable transportation with biking too. So thanks, Lindsay, for being a co-host. Thank you, Galen, so much for having us and welcome. And thank you for talking to us about such an important topic. So I'd love to throw it to both of you and just hear about your work and what you think are the priorities, next steps, and how can we see safer streets? Lizzie, do you want to kick it off? Okay. So when I started my activism, I had no idea what I was doing. All I knew is my son died on Queens Boulevard. He was riding his bicycle, and then he was hit from behind by a freight truck. And the truck ran him down, and he died instantly, almost instantly, in a few seconds, the doctor said. And when I went to visit the spot, I was really shocked in my grief to see that there was no bike lane on Queens Boulevard. And I remember my son always told me whenever I was worried that you shouldn't be riding your bike in the city. And he assured me, he told me, Ma, don't worry, there are bike lanes everywhere. And I carry a bike route map. So I thought in my mind that maybe bike lanes are supposed to keep people safe. And so when I went to see the spot, I was surprised to see that there was no bike lane. 
And at that moment, I just uttered those words, why there is no bike lane on Queens Boulevard. And even though my son is gone, he won't be back. But if there is a bike lane, it would save lives in the future. And I said, whatever it takes, however I can, I'll get a bike lane on Queens Boulevard. And nobody really took me seriously. I mean, my family members, they were with me and they thought I was just grieving and I would be fine after a while. But then it stuck with me. I kept working towards it. And so I really had no idea who was my elected official, my council member, where to go. I mean, I didn't have any idea. So I turned to my son's friends, those who were close to me at that time. And they suggested various things, do this, do that. He's your council member. You should get in touch with Ghost Bike. You should get in touch with uh, Caroline Samponero, who was the deputy director of transportation alternatives in New York. Also, I knew that for Mother's Day, Anna Jarvis, he used, she used to write letters to lawmakers, and I thought I would do that too. I can send emails out. And I kept doing that. I kept in touch with other people, other organizations. Eventually, it turned out that I started it all by myself. But gradually, people, organizations, they joined me, they supported me. And then it's a long story. I'm not going to go into details, but... It took a while, like eight years, to do all the advocacy and campaign to get a bike lane, but it started to be in effect from 2016, but then it took another seven years to get the whole bike lane. So by that time, we started Families for Safe Histories in New York City, and my aim was to get a bike lane on Queens Boulevard. That's where my son was killed. But When we got together with all the other members of Families for Safe Streets, we realized or we understood that there were other things to keep the streets safe. So different people, they proposed different things. Eventually, we were able to reduce the default pit limit of New York City. It was 30 miles per hour, and then we lowered it to 25 miles We were asking for 20 miles, but I guess it was too low. They used to call Queens Boulevard the Boulevard of Death. And the sad thing Mm. is how, as a society, we just kind of ignore these things and then, oh, we'll give it a catchy little name, you know, and ignore the problem, which is what they did. And one of the things I love that she told me when I was in New York, they were saying, oh, we cannot do that. It's just too much infrastructure change. and There's too much going on in this one place. And I love this. She goes, well, you guys are the experts, really smart people. I'm sure you will figure it out. Put it back oh, on them. Wow. It was yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Queens Boulevard was a dangerous, scary road. It's white. It has six lanes in most of the places. So 12 lanes both ways. And to cross it, it was really dangerous because it took time. And then the red light went off, green light started, cars started to move. It was really scary. A lot of people died. And now it's called Boulevard of Life. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Lizzie, Grandma Beverly was just mentioning how it was one component that got fixed and then it kind of expanded to the rest of the boulevard. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you were able to think about starting with one intersection or one block and how you were able to convince the whole stretch of it. Or was that easier once they were proving that it was safer with a little bit of change? Well, Queens Boulevard, the part uh, Mayo decided to work on that was seven and a half miles long. And he decided to do it in three phases. And first phase was done quite easily. We had to attend meetings, community board meetings, DOT meetings, and collecting signatures, other measures. And it was done. There was not that many problems. But the next year, when 2017, they started to work with phase two. There was some protest from the residents, shop owners, because their fear was bike lane would take up the parking spot and they didn't support it. We again went through all the process like campaigning, collecting petitions, attending different meetings, and it was done. And in 2018, third phase started and I myself and the TA members and also my friends from FSS, Families for Safe States, we went through the same process. But my major shock was every time mayor came in, you know, he was gracious to call me. And also I told my story. And up until the press conference, I had no idea that phase three, the third part of Queens Boulevard, was supposed to do in two different years not in one year, like phase one and phase two. So Mayor, he revealed that it would be done in two years, in two phases. So in 2018, I was a little bit dissatisfied because I was planning for a celebration after the boulevard was done, the redesigning process was done, but it didn't. So it lingered. And 2019, it didn't get done. 2020, no, 2021, yes. And I almost gave up and we had rallies, demonstrations, meetings, but uh, it took time. And finally, finally, Mayor decided to do it in 2021 last year. When he did it, I was out of the country and I couldn't be at the press conference. But my friends from DOT, they record from me. And it was done. And after I returned in November 2021, we had a celebration, right? And it was really so sad. And also, I was happy. I had both feelings because we got the bike lane and we got it in return of my son's blood and my tears. So it was a memory for me, and I really loved it. My friends from TA, they got a pedicab for me because I can't ride a bike. And they wanted me to feel the feeling of how the bike lanes are, how the bikers feel. So I was on the pedicab almost the whole way. I was thinking of my son, and I had a large picture of him next to me as if he was sitting with me. So it was really amazing that it's done, whole redesigning. And after the first part was done, the boulevard was dubbed as the third safest bike lane in the United States. 
because the measures they took to broaden the streets, put longer traffic lights, and all the other different measures, they thought it was one of the safest bike lanes in the United States. So, yeah, it was a really nice memory, and I'm happy that we did it. You're listening to Bike Talk with co-host Galen Mook. The topic is Why Should I Care? With Families for Safe Streets member Lizzie Rahman. Lizzie, that's a very touching and heartwarming story that you were able to, in the end, celebrate all the work in honor of your son. I guess maybe my question to you, how was it that after years of trying to get the politicians to care and the public to care and the businesses to care, Can you describe a little bit of the process of how you were able to share your story, which is so heartfelt and personal, and make it relate to those who might be opposed to these changes or who might not understand really the importance of slowing down traffic and making a safer road? What might be, and I don't want to say maybe give us tips, but if you could look back on some of the key things that connected well with people who might not have the same sentiment and deep feeling as you, how did you bridge that gap? I'm very curious about that. Um, Well, as I told you earlier that I knew that writing to the lawmakers work, and I kept sending emails to everyone, every single person that I could get hold of, could find out. So that didn't matter if that person was an elected official from Queens or Brooklyn or Manhattan or other places. I kept writing them. And also the city council officials Many responded with positive attitude and, you know, but some like the mayor was Bloomberg at that time and he didn't respond to my emails. Then what I did was I knew that the media was my best friend and I sent them a copy of my letter and told them that mayor didn't answer my emails. And then some of the newspapers, they picked up and one newspaper published my whole email and some other newspapers, they wrote an article, why Mayor didn't respond and other headlines, catchy headlines, the Mayor is quiet over and over and again, something like that. So I got support from media. And also in the very beginning, whenever I found out about some of the elected officials, council members, I found out that Queens Boulevard is a long street and it falls into three different council districts. And the place where my son died, that was the district under council member Hiram Montserrat. He is not in power anymore. And one of my son's friends told me that you should go visit him. And I went to visit him. I gave him his music CD. And the music CD, my son recorded right before his death and Mm. A few days after his death, he was supposed to have a CD release event. So one of his friends told me, I didn't know it. So I gave him a copy of his CD and requested that, please do this. And then I found out in my neighborhood, we are not near Queens Boulevard, another council member, James Gennaro, he was our council member. And when I found out my son's other friend, he told me, and I went to his office without any appointment. And I walked in and he was not in the office. And I spoke to his staff and she cried. After I told Mm. my story about my son, she kept crying. And she said that she would talk to the council member. And finally, that council member was the first council member to hold a press conference at my son's crash site. 
And so whenever I heard about Saman, I went to him. I went to his office. I wrote to him. I kept writing to them. And when we had the first memorial bike installation on Queens Boulevard, the Ghost Bike Organization, they arranged for it. And they said they would get in touch with the media. But I was not just sitting alone. So I stopped by our local newspaper, Queens Tribune or maybe Queen's Chronicle, it's all messed up by now. So I stopped and I spoke to the editor. I told him all the story, how my son was hit and killed and how there is no bike lane on Queen's Boulevard. And it should be if they don't put up a bike lane, then people would lose their lives. So other mothers, I feel the pain of a mother. Our life is not the same anymore. So they sent a reporter to this event. And that is the first response from the media and first report in the mainstream media. And when I say mainstream, I'm a Bangladeshi Bengali speaking person. And in our community, there are a lot of newspapers. They wrote articles, news. But the thing is, it was the first um, a mainstream newspaper reporter and news coverage. And from that day on, I didn't have to look back. I got sympathy. I got support mm-hmm. of the other journalists, reporters, editors. Let me step in and say that we are joined today by Dr. Frank Cruz, who is Zachary's father. And the bio that I have here also have him as a football coach and a college professor. He's the founder of the Zachary Michael Cruz Foundation, which is named after his son and Beverly, your grandson, struck and killed by a driver while he was in a crosswalk in Berkeley, California in 2009. And Frank, I'll pass it to you and kind of ask the same question. How do you raise awareness? How do you make people care? And if you have any suggestions, sharing stories of your personal tragedy, as hard as that may be, how do we get that message to folks who feel disassociated? How do we bridge the gap so that other people can really start to care especially, as Lizzie was saying, those who have the power to make the changes. Galen and Lindsay have been talking with Lizzie Rahman about her son Asif and traffic violence. Now we'll hear from Dr. Frank Cruz. This is Bike Talk, streaming at KPFK in California, Valley Free Radio, and WNBR in Massachusetts. Thanks for inviting me to be here. Hi, Frank. Hi, Lizzie. I met Lizzie in New York at the site of where he was killed and. Just listening to her speak, I don't have much more to say because unfortunately, I think the story is fundamentally the same. The apathy gap that you're talking about is real. And it's an important question. How is that bridged? Hearing Lizzie talk, I'm reminded of the importance of humanizing the people who've died, that this is not a statistic. This is not a data point or one member of a community among thousands or millions in New York. This is Lizzie's son, who is an artist and who has a record and who planned a party And when you humanize the people who've been the victim and lost their lives, you center them and not yourself. So I know Lizzie does that a lot, and I try to do that as well. It's my loss, Galen. I mean, you said we've lost. I've lost my son. And Beverly's lost her grandson. Lizzie's lost her son. But the primary loss is for these individuals, right, who were denied the right to live their lives and to have their CD release party and to maybe get a record deal and all the futures that we don't know. So that's really important, I think, to center these people as individual human beings who had passions and loves and dreams and make sure that it's about Asif or it's about Zachary. That is emotional and that is hard. And it takes time, I think, for families to find the best way for them to tell that story. And for Lizzie, it's the media. And I think we've certainly done that in California and Berkeley where Zachary was killed. 
we've used the media to the extent that we can, and we've put pressure on political leaders. We've also made connections with those politicians at the city level and throughout the state who are receptive to what we're saying. That personal connection, Lizzie says, I bring a CD. That makes it real. I know that my mother, Beverly, planned to make cookies. You know, she wanted to make cookies for Zachary for his whole life, and she doesn't get to do that, right? So she brings cookies when she goes to meet a police department. And I think those are the symbolic things that reach people in a way that policy really just doesn't. And that's an important way to humanize the victims of these crashes, to step back from it. I mean, for me, yeah, I use a lot of stories of Zachary's life. I like to bring his photograph with me just so people have to sort of see the face of this boy and confront him in a way. I've gotten to the point where I don't mind being confrontational, first with kindness, but then progressively a little more righteous indignation if I have to. And to ask them, where is your son tonight? Where is your daughter tonight? Where is your grandson tonight? Because mine was killed as a result of negligence, ignorance, and apathy. They say you catch more flies with honey than vinegar, right? But you put honey and vinegar together and sometimes you get a nice little combination. You know, you put some citrus in there. (laughs) You'll find people respond to you differently if you're going to push. And I think it's the sincerity of this issue for the people who are in it. For whatever reason, you're in this work. If it's purely policy, then I'm amazed. You know, the people who come to this from an academic perspective is pretty rad to me. Mm. Care enough to dedicate their lives. I don't know, Galen, maybe you're that kind of person. I'm not really sure of your bio and what brings you to facilitate these conversations. But for those of us who were forced into it in a moment where our loved ones were taken away, we didn't have a choice. Some of you volunteered for this war and some of us were recruited into it. One step back, the larger thing I want to say is we're talking about rhetoric. We're talking about rhetorical analysis. And so I'm a college professor and I teach in the English department at Lake Tahoe Community College. And that means I spend a lot of time teaching kids how to read, how to write, and how to make arguments. And when we get to the point of rhetoric of how do we make convincing and compelling arguments, like that's the core of what you're talking about. And people like Lizzie and my mom, Beverly, they maybe don't know it on the academic side, but intuitively they've figured out how to do this. So Lizzie's talking about who is the communicator. That is a parent who has lost their loved one. And that gives us a great deal of credibility when we're talking to politicians because their whole mm-hmm. story is we're here to protect you, right? So rhetoric asks us to consider who's speaking and really think through those implications and what is the issue and why does it matter? That's your question. What is the purpose of what I'm saying? What do I want? And Lizzie said, we really wanted engineering changes. There was something very specific you wanted. And the form of the communication takes letters, takes emails. I've made videos and websites. And so we find all these different strategies to shape our communication and who is the audience. So we identified like Lizzie did in Berkeley. I want to say her name because she's an amazing local leader in the city of Berkeley. Her name is Councilwoman Lori Drosty. And we actually targeted her, to be honest. Someone in my family identified Lori from her website and said, I think Councilwoman Drosty is going to help. I think she's going to be receptive to what you're saying. She had young kids going to the school in the neighborhood right where Zachary was killed. And that was her district. It was her corner and her intersection. She wasn't the council member that was representing that street when he was killed. But when we came to her and I met her one-on-one, like Lizzie said, at the intersection, we had a real moment. Frank, hold on. Lori Drost is an awesome politician because after she met us, she didn't just say, oh, I'm sorry, pat us on the back. She showed up to Vision Zero conferences. She wanted to understand more about the problem of the traffic and the safety on the roads. And she's been a very big advocate, just as we've been an advocate for the Berkeley Police Department. They were going to cancel out their traffic division. Sorry, can't do that anymore because we want Vision Zero. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lori is fantastic. She did more than say, I'm sorry, which is very important. And we had an ask. We said, we want to get Vision Zero adopted in the city of Berkeley. We all talked about that, having an ask. And that's the purpose of this communication with city council or with the police department. Because sometimes the ask feels so big, right? The fundamental thing I want is my son back. I mean, that's the thing I want. I want my son back. And there's no way they can give that to me or Lizzie. And what are we going to settle for then? We'll settle for you moving the stop sign. We'll settle for you making our community safer so that other people do not have to endure this kind of pain. Lori came out to a protest we were having. We do a lot of those. And the drivers who continue to drive like assholes, we have no problem being confrontational if we need to. In terms of our signs, in terms of our messaging, one of our big signs was very stark. It was drive like your kid died here. Mm. And it was the driver who rolled this stop killed my son. It was very short communications, knowing that it's not going to be wordy and it's not even going to be very nice because you're actively doing the thing that endangers human lives. And either you don't know it and I just need to inform you or you know don't it care. and I need to sort of shake you a little bit. So that gets to the purpose of this. So it's communicator, issue, purpose, form, and audience. And finding a receptive audience at the city level or in the media is super important. And so Lizzie's a model of how to do this really well. I think Beverly's a model of how to do this really well. And a lot of people in Families for Safe Streets across the country, we know this or we've learned this and we're doing it. And I appreciate the opportunity to be like, hey, I'm an English teacher. This is how I teach my students. It's like ancient Greece. So these guys knew what they were talking about. Like they, they, they figured it out pretty well. So I'm just borrowing from the greats. I appreciate your academic take here, but what I'm getting, it's the emotion and empathy that you're able to get across. And I'm impressed that you're able to kind of lay it out in kind of an academic way. Could you talk about rhetoric is power? That's so interesting. Could you just take that apart a little bit for us? Those who master rhetoric, right? When you think of those who make arguments successfully and, and know this, know this sort of tradition of critical thinking, you're thinking of lawyers, you're thinking of politicians, you're thinking of advertisers. Those are the ones who tell stories in a way that get us to do what they want us to do. The place where power resides most strongly in our country, the market, the media, politicians, religious leaders, they know how to do this. I teach a lot of working class students. I teach a lot of students who are first generation and non-traditional um, underrepresented you know, freshmen at a community college in rural Northern California. And these are communities that have been disempowered. And I think Queens is a community by and large, you know, that you might say has been disempowered historically. And we know that this question of advocacy, pedestrian, bike safety, it's been connected to social justice issues because we know it's those poorest zip codes in our towns and states where the data is most outrageous in terms of the number of deaths. And so we know this is a social justice issue. So I'm thinking about it coming from the point of all of us who are disempowered by our local government or by a culture community that doesn't care, by an automobile gasoline lobby that has no interest in changing the way our cities work and move. And so we have to use the tools of power, which is, I think, strong argumentation. The politician does it every day when he says one thing but means another. And we can deconstruct that if we know this rhetorical method. I want to add one thing to your response. This is not only just a campaign or asking for the right thing or saving people. It's also a therapy for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't know what I would have done after the death of my son. This kept me alive, this communicating with people and doing different things, asking for different things, talking to people and so on. And I worked. I had a young boy. He was only 10 years old. But still, there was a void in my heart, and I couldn't fulfill it. But I tried to ignore it by my activities for him. 
whatever I did, going to meetings, going to hearings, press conferences, rallies, all these things, and talking to lots of people. I mean, it helped me. I mean, it kept me alive, but inside I'm dead. Yeah, I hear you. I look okay, but I'm not so okay. Don't look inside yeah, yeah. yeah, You can see my inside. I mean, there is a void and there will always be a void. He wrote a lot of poems, but I would just like to share one with you today. The thing is, also, I believe that our sons are dead and they can talk for themselves. We are their voice. We talk for them, right? I think in this way. And I also told people that, you know what, today is my son. Next time it could be your son or your family. So please go ahead and sign it or do this, support us. So that's how I approached people. And I did a lot of talking. So whenever you want to hear it, just let me know a poem. He wrote a lot of poems and I published his book of poems the year after he died. I wanted to preserve them. I wanted people to read it. And then I printed a second edition two years ago. And this is the second edition. If I ever come to California or you come here, I'll give a copy to you. His poems are so spiritual as if he knew that he would die. I mean, we all know he would die, but in his mind, it was maybe sooner than he planned. You're listening to Bike Talk. Galen and Lindsay are talking to Families for Safe Streets members about losing loved ones to traffic violence. If folks want to jump in with anything that they still want to say, and then Lizzie, I'd love to pass it to you, reading your son's words to us, if that sounds all right. Can I start? Mm -hmm. Please. Just keep it on that question, why should we care? And Lizzie said it quite well, because next time it could be you or one of your loved ones. And if that's not a good enough reason to want to say street, I don't know what is. Yeah. And thank you for that. It's real and it's personal and it could be anybody. And then nowadays in L.A., every night cars are running through buildings and off the road and it's totally a speed thing you can tell and a not paying attention thing. Folks with these phones, I wish we could sue the phone and car companies. I know we're working on the car companies with the big vehicles, trying to get them to design them for safety outside the vehicle as well as inside. So that's one thing, but it'd be nice to be able to just make them fix the problem, which is when you get in a car with a phone, it shouldn't be able to work together. Maybe you phone, stop and use that phone. One question I do want to throw out is I'm very impressed with the connections that you have all made together and the fact that I see you all working and leaning on each other in this incredibly tough work. I'm wondering two things. One, how does that work? How do you all get connected? I'm curious about that. If there's anybody listening who is not yet connected or if there's any way that we could point people to either a network or find ways of sharing, not necessarily personal information, but of the community to grow. Um, and then my second question I'm hoping to answer is, where do you see this going in its next steps? I imagine this work will be something that you always hold with you. Can you envision a transformation or any sort of next phase? I have a teeny bit of hope, okay, that Congress passed that infrastructure bill with $1.2 trillion to go to local governments. And that money is from the federal government, but if we don't go put our hands out to get it, it will go away and be used elsewhere. So our main goal is to educate everybody, especially the engineers and such, that engineering is the first problem. When things need to change big time, and while we have this money, let's do it right. 
and transform complete cities instead of little little band-aids on on big problems and that's probably about where i would leave it but i don't know if the gun violence is going to overthrow the stat but for elementary school car crashes are the leading cause of death for children 5 to 13 and that every 30 hours an angelino is killed in a car crash now that's not enough to get you to want safe streets i don't know what it I'm going to jump in. I'm sorry. You said if that's not enough, it's just simply not enough. We know that in our culture. We know that in this country. So it's wishful thinking and it's not strategically going to get you too far. That data point is horrifying. But again, you had to preface it in relation to recent gun violence. I don't know if this is still true. And I mean, that, that says all you need to know about our culture. So I think you have to have hope to do anything and you have to have love. So instead of hope, I point to love, the love that we all feel for Zachary, who knew him and when we make our choices and share the stories or go and do whatever we do in the community in his name. And Lizzie does the same thing. For me, love is what is going to motivate this and push this forward as a social justice movement, even in the absence of political hope or the reality of the fight that we are fighting is not easy to win or maybe even winnable without a total reimagining of the way our society works, right? So I'm talking about the root problems of these things are not little policy issues. We need to sort of pause society for a minute and redesign everything from the ground up. And I know that's not happening in the Biden administration, let's say, like, let me frame it politically. That's not happening in the next two to four years. That's a long-term project. We're not the ones who designed these roads. So first we build the streets, then we build the town. And that's why we're still driving around. That's a quote from this band, Arcade Fire, an album called The Suburbs. First we build the streets, then we build the towns. That's why we're still driving around. Mm -hmm. We need to redesign all of this. And that's going to be a long, long fight for social justice that's very intersectional. I think continue to move forward with love and we make connections with other people, even through this loss across the country, across Zoom. Families for Safe Streets is the kind of place to meet and to gather. And the Vision Zero Conference, if you can get there, if you'll meet a lot of people with stories that sound just like yours and it'll break your heart, you know, but I've got your picture, Lizzie. I've got a cease button and there's power in that. There's power in coming together, even in sadness and loss and knowing that I'm not alone. You can also check out Families for Safe Streets. And I think in New York, we have a way to help you start a chapter in your own town. Yeah, thank you for that. You guys are in my book. Yeah, <laughs> that day, I just, coming and seeing you was so impactful on me. And I needed it yeah. too, like you said, as therapy. I needed to see you and go out there. We all motivate each other is what it seems. We motivate each other. Like Iron Maiden, who didn't make it on the call today. She sometimes just don't even want to get out of bed and would rather eat a bullet. She's in so much pain from a hit on collision with a texting teenager while she right. was on a motorcycle. Those are some of the sad stories too. She's still here, but she's miserable. I'm hearing it's Families for Safe Streets is the connection. Yeah, we support each other totally. I think that and was for us. We came to New York for the Vision Zero Conference. Our California can continue. And Lizzie Everybody. was like, okay, we want to see the Empire State Building. I want to see where Biggie Smalls was born. And then we got to go see Lizzie. Like it was the list of New York was Lizzie. And on our way, we found a White Castle. So we were super excited. <laughs> So it's just yeah, a bunch of real people case. getting yeah. together, dealing with the very real issues and taking it to the next level instead of just grief in your bed. Yeah, thank you for that. Lizzie, I wonder if I could pass it to you. Okay, I'll just continue what was discussed right now. Families for Safe Trees. Through this group, I found my soulmates. Like we all lost someone and I could connect to each other better than other people because other people don't really get our pain. So after this group was organized, I was very friendly with them and I loved them. And they were my only friends, you can say. 
Okay. So he wrote a lot of poems, and I published only poems from the last two years of his life in this book. And this one poet, poem I just picked for today, What Will Our Child Look Like by Asif Rahman. What will our child look like? Will her eyes be saturated with desperation? Will his tiny brow carry the threat of defeat? Will our child walk through life hopeless, confused, and lost amongst the pews of promise? Will he care to call you Umi? Will she care to call me Baba? What will our child look like? Will our child bear the abuse of a world of material? Will our child ask himself why he is different? Will she one day come home crying, Umi, I'm ugly, Baba, I'm worthless. Or will we teach them better? Will we teach them that the maintenance of heart and soul rises above this discrimination? Will we show them to love the poor and teach the ignorant? What will our child look like as he realizes that a man's worth is measured in dignity, not dollars? Show me our daughter when she understands her worth as a woman, the cipher of life, because I want to see our child. As a tear rolls down the battlefield of my face, while I kiss their forehead, telling them that they are beautiful. But he didn't you know, get a chance to even get married. Thank, Thank you for sharing that. that was Thank you. Beautiful. Thanks for letting me read it. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you all and for the work and sorry for the tragedies and just want to say that we're here as an amplification of your voice. Appreciate that big time. Every little bit helps is our motto. Or we yeah. get the message out. Maybe we're going to reach somebody that's going to be able to help and reach back. Thank you for dedicating yourself to such a real and important cause. What's that that Amy says? It's the club no one wants to belong to. And that's the truth. But now that we're here, we're making the best of a bad situation. Lizzie, that was such a lovely poem. And maybe we can find a way to get this on our website as well. And some of the work from your son and his art can be shared on our SoundCloud and such too. Yeah, his pen name was Metaphysical Lyrical Wizard. So <laughs> that's a lot name. And there are a lot of videos that he created, rhyming, beatboxing, reading poetry that is called Spoken Words. There are a lot of videos, and I also made a video with the still photos to ask for a bike lane long time ago. So that one is also on YouTube. Oh, let me end up saying one thing. A few years after Lipstead, someone reached me, and he said that he was new. He came from Bangladesh, and he had trouble adjusting, and he was going through the Internet, and he found a video of Asif. There was a documentary on him when he was 20, but he spoke like a wizard. I mean, an old man. He said things that motivated that young boy. And he is old enough now, but he was struggling, but he was motivated after he listened to Asif. And he wrote me that your son, after his death, he is still motivating people. 
amazing how our loved ones leave their mark, even as little as Zachary or as old as Lizzie's son. But I know I don't want my grandson to be forgotten because he didn't get a chance to make his own mark on the world. Yeah, I think that's one of the things. Both Asif and Zachary are young. One is at the beginning of going to school, and the other one is a very young man. Mm-hmm. A lot of life ahead of him and a lot of potential that was snuffed out. And it's one of the things I hear in Lizzie's work to remember her son it resonates with me. And it's that idea of this person left something here for us to explore and for us to treasure and wonder at. These kinds of almost prophetic pieces of poetry that signal something, this question in that text, like what will our child look like? So that we know that that child did not come to be. And we read that differently maybe than he wrote it. But it's different for a six-year-old who left behind some Legos and some crayon artwork. But we found meaning in that as well. And I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley working on my PhD when he was killed. So I was a student at the college and he was a student at the elementary school. And I guess he was in Berkeley his whole life, essentially. And when he died, we brought suit against those who were responsible for his death. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that we got out of that was funding for a permanent endowed scholarship at Berkeley. My son would be a freshman in college right now. Followed his passions for STEM and science. I imagined then, and I've been able to fantasize that he would have been in a science field. And, you know, it's a beautiful fantasy because I can take it any direction my heart wants to go. And that is with my son at UC Berkeley this year, you know, mm-hmm. starting his education and going to the school where I went and that we love together. And he's not there and he won't be. But what is there is his name, the Zachary Mm -hmm. Memorial Scholarship, is what we started after he was killed. And we give $10,000 from that endowed scholarship every year to student parents, you know, to those students on campus who have to balance work and family and school and are succeeding in spite of those odds. And knowing that my son's name is going to be a part of Berkeley, even after I'm gone, and that this is a permanent part of the institution, helps me know that in some ways he won't be forgotten. And I think that's what the poetry and the work that Lizzie's done really does, too. It helps comfort. They're gone, but they left something important while they were here, and we've tried to build something important on what they showed up. I love that poem, and I knew he was talented. Asif was a good writer, but as an English professor, that's the kind of writing you just love. You hear writing like that from a young writer, and you know their potential is just astronomical. I want to say, as a reader of poetry, I really enjoyed that with you. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And you know what, Frank? It doesn't matter how old your child is, 5 or 15 or 25, as he was 22 years old. And it doesn't matter. It hurts the same. They all leave memories. They are different. So you did the right thing. I started a scholarship in Bangladesh because it's cheaper. I could afford it. So I give a child a scholarship up until he or she graduates from college. It's like high school. It's a 10-year high school and two years intermediate college, equivalent to high school in here. You know what? He didn't get a chance to graduate from Queen's College. He was going to Queen's College. He was 22 years old. And my youngest son, he graduated last week from Queen's College. And my older son never got a chance to graduate. He wanted to be a music teacher. And my daughter, she was studying law when my son died. And she's an attorney. She has her own business in Manhattan now. And she was telling me, Mom, maybe we should start a scholarship in Queen's College for a safe. And I said, how am I going to pay for it? But maybe we would do something for that. So, Frank, take comfort. Your child was young. Thank you. And I think love motivates me in education, the importance of that, because every scholarship applicant 
that comes through our system and your system is reading a bit of the story probably. And so we're raising awareness and education is about the last thing that I believe in. At the end of history here, it's what we call it in academia, the end of history, late capitalism, like this moment where things are it's going to be pretty tough to turn the ship around here. But if there's a way to turn the ship around to, to safer streets and to a more just and equitable world where people can just live with dignity, it's going to be through education. And so that's not coincidental that we're all interested in our children's memories and legacy. The legacy is one of education and love. Share that love and use education as the tool to empower others to think critically about their choices and that's how we fix the problem. We go back and fix people's consciousness at the youngest age, which in compassion and love instead mm -hmm. of individuality and market value you know, here in Silicon Valley. So this is all kind of ironic to me to talk about this stuff at the cold black heart of capitalism here in Wall Street, right? So to me, education is what's going to get us out of this mess. Mm -hmm. And that's what Galen's doing. And I think that's what these kinds of podcasts do is they raise consciousness, awareness, and they help educate. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's a good work and it's not easy, but it's good. It's got a real value. Thank you for the platform. And there's thank you there's for the so much work. more. That's it, the good work. It's something that we are proud to be partners in with you. Yeah, we'll keep rocking and rolling if you keep rocking and rolling. Yeah, yeah we're here for you. Making it, not letting the story die, you know, keep the story alive. What sucks is there just keeps being more and more stories every single day. You know, that stat from LA just blows me away. Yeah, we have work to do, but I'm grateful that you have the power of your passion and are able to tell the stories of Asif and Zachary and keep them in your hearts and share them with us. And I'm grateful that you are able to share your family, frankly. Like when I speak of Zachary and if I start off with my grandson was killed in Berkeley, blah, blah, you know, crosswalk. But then I go, he wanted to be a scientist and an astronaut. And he wanted to have his dad take the BART because his car pollutes the earth. Okay, <laughs> that's when people connect with me when I'm yeah. telling about Zachary and who he was and what he thought. And me and Debbie have done a couple of videos where we use Kitty Chesney's Who You'd Be Today song. And it's just about people who died too soon. Yeah. And it fits every single family member we have. So you just mm -hmm. put down a bunch of pictures and hopefully you get the point that you cut somebody's life off and they don't get to be anything anymore. I said at a city council meeting not too long ago, Zachary doesn't get anything. So please yeah. put a spin before somebody else dies. Lizzie, yeah, please go ahead. You know, people used to write or say that three people died on Queens Boulevard or 25 people died, you know, just a number. And I used to tell them, it's not just a number, it's a person. And there is a family behind a person. And there's a community behind that family. It's the whole country. And they were counting a number. One person died, two people died, three people. So I don't really like that idea that they refer to a victim of a crash as a number. Yeah, it's getting re-traumatized. I mean, I get re-traumatized whenever I meet a new family member and their story's similar. Just in general, this work is hard. The motivation comes from the love of my Zachary. Mm -hmm. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and it's not a number. That's what the whole Vision Zero concept is, is not a single one is acceptable. Right. And it's not a number. It's Zachary. It's awesome. It's not a crash. It's a family member. Well, I wish that any conference I ever go to in the future where they put that big fat line showing how many people have died, that they put mm -hmm. faces all the way up and down that line mm -hmm. instead of just that big fat line and a ridiculous number. Yeah, it's it. Names, it's faces, it's stories. It's, mm -hmm. it's a big difference. I can't imagine how hard it is on the day to day. And again, just want to say how grateful I am that you're able to share. Well, the holidays and birthdays, that's like a remotivator for me. I don't know about other people. Mm. You know, when I go through a holiday or a special occasion, and that's always, it's like a dark cloud in the room. Zachary's not here. 
He's here in spirit. He's here at the picture on the table, but he is not here. Yeah. Jalen, I want to say on behalf of Grandma Beverly and I, we appreciate the opportunity to be here. And thanks for giving the platform. I've avoided talking to you for a long time, actually. (laughs) My strategy is kind of avoidance for a long, long time until I, for some reason, have no other excuses for why I can't come to a conference. It's something I've done as best I can, but I can't be as involved as other people just emotionally. But always when I do, when I get into the conversations with other family members and advocates and my mom's dragging me to New York City for a conference, I resist it. And then I'm really happy that I had the chance to process this and to know that I'm not alone in this story. Lindsay and I may have signed up for this and you all got conscripted. And I don't want you to feel like you have to be. And if there is a point where you have to peel off and leave it to those who choose and same with us, we'll pass it off to others who are with us. And we're standing on shoulders of giants here. Though you are using this for social justice and therapy and all the rest of memory, please don't feel compelled, but you are welcomed. You're listening to Bike Talk online at biketalk.org, streaming at KPFK in Los Angeles, Valley Free Radio in Western Massachusetts, and WMBR in Cambridge. We now go to co-host Lindsay Sturman and her interview with Dutch traffic engineer Dick Van Veen. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Lindsay Sturman, and today we have Dick Van Veen from the Netherlands. He is a senior traffic engineer and urban designer who specializes in bridging the gap between traffic and public space. Welcome, Dick, to Bike Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And we're so excited to talk about how do we create safe spaces for our kids? How do we create communities and streets where a 10-year-old kid, like they can in the Netherlands, a 10-year-old kid can ride their bike alone to school, have freedom, go hang out with a friend, and they're really never in danger. Well, I would say it's it's a complete package of how you organize your network and how you organize and you design your streets. And my kids, my elders are 10 and 8, and I really want them to bike to school by themselves. I'm living pretty rural for a Dutch context, so that means they have to bike about three kilometers or two miles to their schools. I want to do it by themselves. And because it's not high urban, that also means that we have a limited amount of bicycle infrastructure. They get more or less the option of going on a arterial. 30 miles per hour with only a painted bike lane or they can go through local streets at 20 miles per hour limits on a more or less mixed use street and then if they would cycle by themselves i would not let them go on a painted bike lane because hence separation is just too limited in my opinion so they will cycle on slower streets on 20 miles per hour streets going less direct going less convenient because it's often street pavers instead of asphalt until they reach the destination by themselves and I guess that more or less limits the, the options we have, right? You've got arterials, should have safe, dedicated infrastructure for cyclists and for pedestrians. You've got local streets at 20 miles per hour, where it's about mixed use, where a car stays behind a bike. You can only overtake it when there's enough space for that. And there's even a lower category, the Wunerf or the eight or nine miles per hour areas where walking and cycling happens on the road itself. There's no sidewalk. There's no need for a sidewalk. And everyone walks more than moves at the pace of foot. That's where that eight miles per hour came from. It's basically you've got the Wunerf, which is nine miles an hour. Think of it as a cobblestone street where kids could play safely. Neighbors could stand in the middle of the street and have a conversation. Their bikes, everybody's going slow. That feels like, so that's one category, right? Yeah. The Winner. I love yeah. the name. <laughs> it means living yard. It more or less is that idea, right? You've got your own yard. Instead of your private yard with a fence around it, you bring that to the outdoor. So your street, again, becomes a place where people can meet and greet and play hide and seek in the street chalk and ride little toddler bikes and normal cars 
drive through it and behave. There's only like super local traffic anyway. So it's either you or your neighbor who's driving on that street. Ugh, um, it sounds magical. It's right. like how we want to live where the street is our backyard. That is our public square. Yeah, it is. And that's where people engage and that's where kids learn how to behave in public space and what to expect. And so it's the first level of awareness of how to become full humans and how to respond. It's actually learned in those places, which wow. are really hard to learn that in your own backyard where everything's protected and supervised by yourself. Right. And everything is dictated who you're with. There's no chance encounters. There's no like in, meeting new friends. Exactly that. Then that's where that category is super important. But then even though the zones can become rather large, right? You can make a radius of three kilometers for a wound So that would mean that your house entrance and shops or schools would be in the same wound and they wouldn't even have to cross one major arterial or max one arterial to get to the school. That's what often happens over here in this part of Europe. For the longer bike routes, that's less convenient, right? Because then you want to have more dedicated bikes. Because in the wound even faster cyclists would have to slow down just as much as cars would have to slow down and behave as gas. And that's where you have your dedicated network of separated bike path, or maybe if it's long arterials, but then protected, boulevard protected, buffer protected. So the second level is, call it 18 miles an hour. It's sort of more of like a main street. It's protected bike lanes. The cars are going no more than 18 miles an hour. And it has things like four-way stops and engineered intersections so that when the car hits the cyclist or the pedestrian, it's really going like 10 to 15 miles an hour. Yeah? Yeah, I would say that on a local street, residential street, on main street, you don't always have to have protected infrastructure. Usually mix and mingle. If it's narrow enough, if the car width, I don't know, 10 feet, don't make the lane wider than 20 feet. Because in that case, if some car is coming from the opposite direction and there's a cyclist in front of you, you just can't overtake. You have to stay behind it. And that really slows everything down. And also with intersections, if you make those intersections nice and tight, if you don't go them with super wide radii, then you can never make a really fast high-speed turn and everything goes easier. And you get more time to see everything. You're more alert. And if an incident happens, it happens at lower speed. So the outcome is less severe and maybe even way more often more prevented. Because as we know, speed kills exponentially. It's yeah. the faster you go, the death rates just skyrocket. Yeah. And, and the weird thing is speed is only one thing, but travel time is another. Travel time doesn't really get shorter if speed goes up. So that's the weird myth that we always need to go as fast as we can. Yeah, my car can go, I don't know, 200 kilometers per hour, but that's impossible to get. It's all about getting to your destination at a convenient and expectable time, right? If you know you're, if you drive pretty slow and you're there in 30 minutes, in a 30-minute drive, you're probably just as fast if you would speed up and then wait for the net traffic lights until it's finally turning green and then you speed up again and you're waiting at the next light again. Are you running and stopping or are you jogging along? And if you design for jogging along, that means you design it in a whole different way slower, more continuously, and then more livable for other users like cyclists and pedestrians and people living there, walking the dogs, chatting to their neighbor. It sounds like the key to all of this is the speed and that slowing the cars down so that when they hit the cyclist, it's not fatal. That's right. And I think to get there, the starting point would be like, so what is this place? Is this a place where cars need to travel as fast as they can? Or is this a place which requires something else, which requires more as a sense of place in which certain lower speed becomes a norm in which other users can find their place again. So 
I would call that livable or inclusive streets instead of just car streets. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You've been listening to Bike Talk. Hear more episodes and get in touch with us by visiting biketalk.org. Thanks for listening and have a good week. Your mind unwind, give us life, pretend to lie, better get yourself a fight.